All right, guys. So it's fall again, and I know we're just a few months away from Creogs. Nick, I'm always looking for places to find good information to make sure that my residents have good information for their exams. And also, you know, I continue to refresh my knowledge of OBGYN. Well, yeah. I mean, you're already listening to what I'll say in my humble opinion is the best podcast in OBGYN, but we also (laughs) have some great other resources available through the resident core curriculum with our friends at the OBG project. Definitely. The nice thing about the OBG project is that not only do they have the resident core, they have an OBG L&D ebook and other things like the second trimester ultrasound atlas, all of which you can access for free as a resident if you sign up. Head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and again, get the OBG project and all their resources free for all four years of residency. Just, again, head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creogs over coffee. coffee. All right, so we're going to go actually and refresh today one of our older podcasts, Faye, regarding gonorrhea and chlamydia, because there have been some updates in the way that we do treatment. So what are our learning objectives? Yeah, so first we're going to review the causes, incidents, and presentation of these two commonly sexually transmitted infections, and we're then going to discuss the changes in treatment guidelines recommended by the CDC in 2021 for these infections. Um, And then finally, we're going to understand the screening guidelines for these infections and the special screening and treatment considerations for pregnancy itself. So you guys may recall that we did talk about um, most of the STIs back in a series in the beginning of 2019, and it really pains us to think that we're already outdating ourselves, but we are. So uh, the podcast is going to be an update to the treatment guidelines, and we'll replace our last episode on gonorrhea and chlamydia. I guess, you know, first we should kind of jump into this and talk about, you know, why are we doing these two STIs together, right? Yeah, I mean... You know, we often will like say off the tongue, right, gonorrhea, chlamydia, GCCT in terms of our testing for these. And Mm -hmm. even in my own documentation about gonorrhea and chlamydia screening for pregnancy, I just lump them together as one thing, right? Um, But they actually, you know, they share a lot of common symptomatology. They can even coexist as infections for patients. Um, And so if kind of for those reasons, it's worthwhile, I think, to review them together. Um, Historically, we often talked about actually co-treatment of these diseases, but testing with nucleic acid amplification has gotten so good, we don't necessarily do co-treatment for these anymore. Um, But we'll get into that momentarily. So I guess, Faye, it's a silly question to ask, but let's just ask it. What are gonorrhea and chlamydia and why do we care about them? Yeah, so I think, you know, as we already said, they're both sexually transmitted infections that anyone can get if they're sexually active of any kind of sex. And there is also vertical transmission that can happen between um, the pregnant person and their child. And so to kind of like go through these two individually, so to talk about gonorrhea first. So gonorrhea is caused by a bacteria called Neisseria gonorrhea, which is a gram-negative diplococci. Um, And there are 1.6 million new infections annually in the U.S. and more than 50% occur in patients aged 15 to 24. So certainly it's very prevalent and it does happen in some of our youngest patients. Um, Usually it's symptomless, but in men can cause things like burning with urination, penile discharge, or even testicular pain. 
And in women, um, like we said before, 50% are symptomless, but this can lead to things like burning with urination, vaginal discharge, intermenstrual bleeding or postcoital spotting, and pelvic pain. And it can also affect other areas like the throat or anus. And if it's untreated, it can lead to things like pelvic inflammatory disease and infertility. And additionally, um, people can become at risk for things like disseminated gonococcal infection, which leads to things like skin pustules or petechiae, septic arthritis, meningitis, and even endocarditis. And while this is very rare, it's certainly very scary, right? It only occurs in 0.6 to 3% of infected women and 0.4 to 0.7% of infected men. But in pregnant patients especially, it's important because um, gonorrhea infection can lead to things like septic abortion, chorioamnionitis, and also neonatal blindness. So what about chlamydia, Nick? So chlamydia similarly is caused by a bacteria, chlamydia trachomatis. I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but it was worth a try. It's a gram-negative bacteria, and it's kind of dependent on a cellular host, so it can only replicate within host cells. It's much more common. It's actually the most common bacterial sexually transmitted infection in the United States with 4 million new infections annually here in the U.S. And more than 65% of them occur in patients who are aged 15 to 24. Um, some estimates incredibly show that at any given time, 1 in 20 sexually active women aged 15 to 24 has an active chlamydia infection in the United States, just to give you a sense of how common this is. Again, it's usually asymptomatic in about 70 to 80% of individuals, but can cause vaginal discharge, burning with urination in women, and in men can have kind of varying symptoms such as discharge from the penis, burning with urination, and pain and swelling in the testicles. Similarly to gonorrhea, rectal infections as well as oral or throat infections are possible. And also similarly to gonorrhea, chlamydia can cause pelvic inflammatory disease and infertility in women. It's actually pretty significant in this regard, and around 15% of patients with untreated chlamydia will develop PID and infertility. Um, chlamydia can also cause conjunctivitis, also known as trachoma, um, which can lead to blindness. And then finally, if we think back to our step one brains, you may remember something called reactive arthritis associated with chlamydia. And so this isn't as significant or scary as disseminated gonococcal infection. Um, but you might remember sort of the, um, I don't know what to call it, the mnemonic of can't see, can't pee, can't climb a tree, um, but describes those symptoms of reactive arthritis with chlamydia. So you get arthritis, conjunctivitis, and urethral inflammation um, leading to that burning. So again, that was a throwback for me there. <laughs> um, <laughs> I haven't had to think about that in a while too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess, Faye, um, the next thing, we hinted at it earlier, but how do we diagnose these infections? Yeah, so uh, you might know this just from doing this in your own clinic, but it's usually just a urine test. Uh, but you can also do an endocervical swab, vaginal swab, rectal swab, or even pharyngeal swab. And then we would send this for a nucleic acid amplification test, which is the gold standard for diagnosing gonorrhea and chlamydia. In terms of who should be tested, the CDC does recommend screening anyone with concerns for any symptoms. They also recommend screening annually for gonorrhea and chlamydia for all sexually active women younger than 25 years old. And then also opportunistic screening for older women with identified risk factors, um, things like new or multiple sexual partners or sexual partners who've recently had an STI. 
And then for men, um, once a year is the recommendation for gonorrhea and chlamydia for all sexually active men who have sex with men, and more frequently every three to six months for men who have sex with men who have HIV or if they have multiple or anonymous sexual partners. All right, so um, let's now talk about how we treat gonorrhea and chlamydia. And notably, this is the thing that's really been updated in the CDC website. Yes, absolutely. And we'll kind of have some caveats or limitations here to really be um, focused on the obstetrician gynecologist. So one, these treatments that we're describing here are the recommendations only for adolescents and adults. We're not talking about newborns or young children. Um, and then we're also not going to be talking about disseminated disease in the case of gonorrhea. Again, that's something that is more significant and so should be handled with folks um, with expertise in infectious disease. One thing about gonorrhea to start with that is that it's becoming more and more resistant to antibiotics. Um, there's even like pretty much completely treatment resistant gonorrhea in some parts of the world. And so there's only one class of antibiotics that really treats gonorrhea effectively anymore, and that's cephalosporins. The CDC recommends a dose of ceftriaxone 500 milligrams intramuscularly times one. And this is an update to the previous recommendations, which had said to use ceftriaxone 250 milligrams. Again, this is a reflection of that changing state of antibiotic resistance of gonorrhea and is concerning because there may even be in some areas ceftriaxone resistant gonorrhea. Um, a test of cure is only recommended for throat infections, and in the case of pregnant patients, it's not necessary, or not necessarily recommended for patients with genital or rectal infections unless they have immunocompromising conditions such as HIV. If a patient is cephalosporin allergic, then the alternative is to use gentamicin 240 milligrams intramuscularly in a single dose and azithromycin 2 grams orally in a single dose, the two of those together. It's important to say here that cephalosporin allergy and penicillin allergy do not completely overlap, and that's particularly true for ceftriaxone. Again, really, really be specific with your patients in terms of what the penicillin allergy was, how high risk they are. Use one of the validated calculators to assess penicillin allergy because more than likely, even if they do have an allergy to penicillins, they will not be allergic to ceftriaxone. Um, and even if they have some cephalosporin reactivity or history of allergy, they may not be allergic to ceftriaxone. So use kind of your hospital's pharmacy and infectious disease department to really, really try to use ceftriaxone in treating this. All right, I'll get off my soapbox there, Faye. Um, let's talk about treating chlamydia. Yeah, so the treatment for chlamydia, um, there's a recommended regimen by the CDC, which is to use doxycycline 100 milligrams PO twice daily for seven days. And then, you know, I had always learned that the actual treatment was azithromycin, but that's actually the alternative regimen, which is azithromycin two grams orally singly in, in a single dose and levofloxacin 500 milligrams orally for seven days is another alternative regimen. So you can already see that there is some overlap with the treatment of gonorrhea. Azithromycin has lower efficacy amongst persons with concomitant rectal infection, which is why the doxycycline regimen is preferred. And then repeat screening may be needed to ensure efficacy of the single-dose azithromycin regimen. 
And then the last part of treatment that we're going to talk about is this expedited partner treatment. So we should treat the sexual partner of the patient diagnosed with chlamydia or gonorrhea without first examining the sexual partner because we presume that um, if our patient has it, that their sexual partner also likely has it. And the CDC does say that EPT, expedited partner treatment, is a useful option to facilitate partner management in states where it is permissible and reduces the reinfection risk for patients while you're treating their partner. And you should always counsel the patient and the partner that they should refrain from having intercourse for at least seven days after all partners have been treated to avoid reinfection. All right. So this specific treatment that we've talked about really is for adolescents and for adults, not for children, right? But we also have not included pregnant patients and how we treat them. Yeah. So kind of for screening in pregnancy, remember that the outset of pregnancy, your first trimester, you should be screening all patients for gonorrhea and chlamydia. And kind of, again, that falls in line with the CDC recommendations for general population screening, because a lot of our patients are under the age of 25 and so should be getting annual screening anyways. If someone is positive, they should be treated for gonorrhea, the treatment is the exact same, the ceftriaxone 500 milligrams times one. For chlamydia, there is a difference in the recommendation as a reflection of the fact that doxycycline is not a medication that we can use in pregnancy. And they actually say that you should use azithromycin one gram orally times one as the recommendation um, for treatment. I wouldn't be surprised ultimately in the future if two grams might end up being the recommended regimen in pregnancy, um, but this just hasn't been changed with data so far. Azithromycin and ceftriaxone as the primary recommended medications are safe to use during pregnancy and risks certainly outweigh the benefits of not treating, um, which we'll talk about in momentarily. EPT is still recommended where permissible, and a test of cure in pregnancy is one of the conditions where it's recommended for both gonorrhea and chlamydia, screening again in three to four weeks. Um, and you should also, in these instances, screen once more in the third trimester. If you have high enough prevalence in your population of gonorrhea and chlamydia, you should potentially even consider universal screening in a third trimester prior to delivery. Faye, let's talk through some of these pregnancy-specific risks of non-treatment. So, no, again, it's pretty unusual for folks not to accept treatment for, for these infections, but say they don't accept it or they don't know that they're infected because we failed a screen. What might happen? Yeah, so the first thing that we'll talk about is vertical transmission to the newborn, which can certainly happen when they come through that birth canal. And so in with vertical transmission for, for chlamydia, uh, this can lead to conjunctivitis, which usually shows up at days 5 to 14 after birth, and also pneumonia, which can happen 4 to 12 weeks um, after delivery. Gonorrhea uh, infections can also cause conjunctivitis. Um, this tends to be more purulent compared to the watery discharge of chlamydia, but both can lead to blindness. And so uh, both of these are things that we definitely want to uh, watch out for. Um, gentamicin eye gel, which is probably, or erythromycin, um, can help to prevent these, and that's why we use it. Um, otherwise, the other things that we get concerned about are things like septic abortion, intact choreo. There's a lot of other like possible poor outcomes for the pregnant person themselves. All right, Nick, I think, you know, we were going through the old episode too, and we had, we dug out some fun facts from the last one around. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess, again, it was early 2019 that we did this episode previously. Um, and so I had completely forgotten that we had dug out this fun fact, if you want to call it that, I guess. Um, and it comes down to a question of, 
you know, colloquially, why is gonorrhea called the clap? So there's an old English word, clappen, which means throbbing or beating. And there's one thought that kind of the clap comes from that word and could mean something regarding the burning during urination that is a common symptom of gonorrhea. Um, but the other theory um, that pains me to say out loud um, is that there was a proposed treatment actually during sort of medieval times um, of clapping the penis or slamming the penis between both hands on a hard surface to help get rid of the discharge and pus and that would treat the gonorrhea um that is yeah it does not sound pleasant at all but gives us maybe some insight as to why the clap is called the clap um sure (laughs) i don't think that's going to be tested on the creogs though probably not but now you maybe have some weird bar trivia that you can hold on to. So, <laughs> um, all right, Faye, why don't we transition away from this awkward ending and try to summarize quickly? Sure. Uh, so we initially first started to talk about gonorrhea and chlamydia and why we care about them. So we know that they're both caused by certain types of bacteria, gonorrhea by Neisseria gonorrhea, chlamydia by chlamydia trachomatis. Um, we realized that you know they're both very prevalent with chlamydia being the most common new infection of STIs um, in the United States. And while both can usually be symptomless, the problem is that both of these infections can cause infertility and PID in women. Um, and then Uh, gonorrhea itself can lead to an increased risk for disseminated gonococcal infection, and chlamydia can cause things like chlamydia conjunctivitis or trachoma, which can lead to blindness, and also reactive arthritis. Diagnosis of these by the gold standard is done with something called a nucleic acid amplification test. This can easily be done via urine test, but also can be done via an endocervical swab, a vaginal swab, um, or rectal or pharyngeal swab if there's concern for infection there. The CDC recommends screening anyone with concern for symptoms, annual screening for gonorrhea and chlamydia of all sexually active women younger than age 25, and then opportunistic screening for older women older than 25 with risk factors such as new or multiple sexual partners, a sex partner who has recently had a sexually transmitted infection. And then for men, once a year screening for gonorrhea and chlamydia is recommended for all sexually active men who have sex with men and more frequently on the order of every three to six months for MSM who have HIV or if they have multiple or anonymous partners. In terms of treating gonorrhea and chlamydia and those that are not pregnant and who are adolescents or adults, we recommend treatment of gonorrhea with ceftriaxone 500 milligrams IM times one. And this is an update where before the recommendation was 250 milligrams. For those who have a cephalosporin allergy, uh, these patients can be given gentamicin 240 milligrams IM in a single dose and azithromycin 2 grams orally in a single dose. In terms of treatment of chlamydia, there was also an update. So this has been updated to doxycycline 100 milligrams PO twice daily for seven days with that azithromycin thermycin 2 gram oral single dose being an alternative regimen, as well as levofloxacin 500 milligrams orally for seven days. And this reasoning is just that azithromycin may have some lower efficacy in those with concomitant rectal infections. Expedited partner treatment is important. So again, you should treat the sexual partner of a patient diagnosed with chlamydia or gonorrhea um, and do that without necessarily examining the sexual partner um, in states where it is permissible. This reduces reinfection risk for the patient while treating the partner, and you should counsel the patient and their partner or partners that they should refrain from having intercourse for at least seven days after everybody has been treated. 
In pregnancy, gonorrhea and chlamydia screening should happen in the first trimester, and if positive, patients should be treated. The treatments are the same, with the exception of that for chlamydia, the recommendation is to use azithromycin one gram orally because doxycycline is not acceptable. There are definitely pregnancy-specific risks of non-treatment, with respect to vertical transmission. Chlamydia, we think about conjunctivitis at five to 14 days after birth and pneumonia at four to 12 weeks of age. And then with gonorrhea, we think about conjunctivitis as well, which is usually a more purulent discharge compared to the watery discharge of chlamydia. Both of these can lead to blindness though. And this is why we recommend gentamicin or erythromycin eye gel to prevent these infections. All right, well, I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, on Instagram and Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee. Or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash over coffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show and all of our other episodes, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website. That's at www.creagedovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hello, email us, creagedovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>